Welcome to the CUNY Lecture Series. In this edition, you can't make this stuff up, but he can. Maggie Haberman of the New York Times says Donald Trump is the only politician who screws up and his poll numbers go up, and he seems willing to say anything. Political correspondent Glenn Thrush says it's funny how when you're president of the United States, stuff you say has a tendency to actually happen. The Trump beat reporters in conversation with Peter Beinart at the School of Journalism describe a Trump rally as the angriest bar mitzvah you've ever been to. So literally, Maggie... What is what is it like? And what is it like to be out there with, with Donald Trump? <laughs> I'm just going to let you all answer that. Um, I thank you very much for having us tonight, by the way. Um, so I, I, this is um, going to be hackneyed to say, but but there really is there is nothing like covering a Trump rally. And, and Glenn and I went to one together in Lowell, Massachusetts, which is <clears throat> a couple of miles uh, outside of New Hampshire. And um, it was... Um, you know, it was it was a, a sort of theater in the round type of arena. Um, it was almost like covering a, a convention speech, except imagine a convention speech with with like an enormous number of protesters and the crowd going wild every time they're escorted out. Um, or, the, or the angriest bar mitzvah. You've the ever the angriest bar mitzvah you've ever <laughs> been to, and it actually really was like that, right? I mean, there's this sort of there's. Um, there's this question right now um, that comes up a lot in terms of covering Trump, which is separating out what Trump says from how his supporters feel or believe. Um, and uh, Trump, I believe, is going to a level I don't remember seeing a uh, front runner for a major party nomination go to in terms of just hostility toward the press openly at his rallies before, where he, will, he makes us a part of the, it, we're like a set piece. He will point to the cameras at the back and he'll say, these are the most dishonest people you'll ever meet in your life. They're terrible. And he'll encourage the crowd to boo you and so forth. Um, I, I have never personally felt concerned um, or, or a sense of anxiety during any of that. Um, I don't think the, I think the crowd is sort of enjoying the act. But his supporters are, are very committed to him for the most part. I mean, that's part of why he's survived more controversies than anyone can imagine. This is the, He's the only politician I can think of where he uh, screws up and his poll numbers go up. Um, we've just never seen this before. Um, and that's getting really tested uh, right now because he's getting uh, a ton of negative sort of information flow around him. I'm sure you all saw this controversy over the weekend about he did not denounce or disavow um, David Duke, the former Ku Klux Klan leader. And then this morning said that he couldn't hear the interviewer who was asking him about it because he had a faulty earpiece, which, um, which two things, um, is, is uh, hard to believe because he didn't seem to have problems hearing the interview and said David Duke's name a few times uh, during it. But it, it did remind me a little bit of the, the Hillary clinton Sua Arafat issue in, in 1999 when, when Sua Arafat was talking about uh, the Israelis um, poisoning the water of Palestinian children, and, and Hillary Clinton was listening through a simultaneous translator and was like sort of nodding along and didn't say anything. And this became a huge controversy in the Senate race, to the point that all politics this year are are local. Um, but Trump is not um, Trump is not who Glenn and I both came up in in New York tabloids um, and in New York media. And the five borough view of Donald Trump is very different than how the rest of the country is seeing him. It's just, it's, um, it's a bit of a sort of distortion field. Um, maybe Glenn has a better, smarter thought on that than I do. What was it like for you? Well, the first thing I want to say is it's very good to be at CUNY. I am actually a Brooklyn College uh, graduate. Woohoo! When I was there, we called it Broken College, but never mind. 
Um, and I actually, uh, you know, I covered, I actually covered Trump as a student, covered Trump, Antonin Scalia, and Al Sharpton as a student uh, journalist. And there's a certain overlap in the three of them. Um, <laughs> I do this podcast for Politico uh, called Off Message. And a couple of weeks ago, I sat down with Al Sharpton. And Al Sharpton, I think, had the most intelligent uh, and sharp take on Donald Trump. And it really crystallized things for me. And, and I think it will crystallize things for you as a New York audience. What he said is, Sharp said, I'm an outsider. I'm a kid from Brownsville, Brooklyn. I always felt like I didn't belong. But I go for breakfast every morning at the Regency. I feel like I've made it. You'll never see Donald Trump at the Regency. Donald Trump hates the tishes, is what he said to me, more than any people in the world. Trump feels like, a, even though he was born a millionaire, even though Fred Trump built, I'm from Sheepshead Bay in Brighton Beach, even though Fred Trump built all the high rises out there, Donald Trump felt like an outer borough pariah who would never be accepted internally. And that is an, a fascinating political and psychological dynamic for a couple of reasons. First of all, he's got the gelt. He's got the money. So he's already a made person. But he has a nagging feeling uh, that he will never be accepted and an innate understanding of people who feel spurned and outside. That is a very volatile combination. Sharpton, I thought, was uniquely positioned to really understand it. And as Maggie was talking, I've been to a couple of Trump rallies. Uh, it, they really do have this incredibly strange uh, feel. I, another place I worked in my early career was in Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama. Actually, the first governor I ever covered was George Wallace, when George Wallace was at the very tail end of his career. And uh, it, it is no surprise to me that uh, Trump does best in the South, and he does best particularly in Alabama. There is a, a surcharge of anger in these audiences. But more than that, I think to, to think of Trump and to think of the dynamic in 2016 as an angry dynamic is to miss, I think, something really fundamental. The issue here is anxiety, and anger being an offshoot of anxiety. A, v a very large proportion of this country, particularly white folks, particularly white folks in the Midwest and the South, feel as if the rules of the game and the definition of the United States itself has changed. So that is why someone who presents them with a blunt, some would say simplistic uh, vision of what the future looks like and what leadership like looks like is so appealing. What may seem to be a caricature uh, to folks on the Upper West Side is a truth to people in the over-the-mountain communities in, in Birmingham, Alabama. It is an explanation of, of a world that seems to be getting out of control, of a diversity that they were not accustomed to when they were growing up, uh, and he projects strength. One last thing, you know, I, I, I've spoke, uh, I've been speaking uh, to a lot of the Clinton folks about how they might game out because, you know, the one punditry I will say is, I think, I think we'll we'll both agree on this. I think Hillary, I, I wouldn't say she has it 100% wrapped up, but she, it's it's very, very, very close to being uh, over. And I think Trump is the same dynamic, and the Hillary folks are gaming out Trump, uh, and I think the dynamic that they are having to deal with is his projection of strength. When they talk about what makes him so dangerous as a potential opponent, and he is a very flawed opponent, and they think they can beat him, is the fact that no one, even people who don't like him, uh, question his, his strength. And it is that strength, I think, that is the foundation of uh, the strength of his candidacy. I, I would just add one thing to that, and I agree with everything Glenn said, um, <clears throat> but, but two things, actually. One is I think that what you see is part of Trump's appeal is 
it is often described as voter, his voters are angry. Um, I think it's hard to overstate the degree to which there is something of a sort of psychic break for voters out, well outside of New York, primarily, um, with their elected leaders and, and politicians uh, over the course of the last uh, two decades, but particularly since the fiscal crisis. Um, just a lot of people feel like they never they never recovered, and the system really is rigged. What's interesting about Trump is he's a, he's a plutocrat who has managed to make himself seem like he's a member of the 99%, which I find kind of fascinating. Um, but it is because he does, one, one of his tricks at his rallies is he uses we and them very frequently, and this is where he uses the press as a device, but not only the press. The other point I would make about the Clintons, though, is, and I agree with Glenn that I, they, they do... They, they are looking at how they can beat him, and they do believe that the strength question is, is a singular one. There is, there is another issue, which is that he is a candidate who is willing to say anything. And she is a, a candidate who is very much a sort of color inside the lines politician. And so how, you know, there's one school of thought that if they are on a debate stage together, he will say something outlandish. Um, and if she, if she is, you know, composed and doesn't react, it will be... Yeah. You know, the, the on steroids version of the Lazio sign it, sign it moment. She, of yeah, she's the Maginot line and he's the Germans. E exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. But if, uh, but there is also the possibility that he says something that so gets in her head and that is so deeply personal and, and uh, hurtful um, that she reacts and then it's just, it's just, you just don't know. It's a complete X factor. I want to, since when you're talking to folks at the Trump rallies, right, it's, um, um, you talked about anxiety, right, uh, a sense of betrayal. There are a lot of people in the Democratic Party who also feel a lot of economic anxiety, sense of betrayal. They like Bernie Sanders, right? They blame Wall Street, right? Um, so one can, inter one, can, one can tell a story based on one's own economic anxiety and find very just different villains. So I guess to be kind of blunt about it, I mean, when you were... Uh, spending time with folks at the Trump rallies, talking to them about what they like Donald Trump, hearing what they're listening to. To what degree do you think this is, you know, to be blunt about it, this is racism? Um, I think that um, I, there are certainly are people who I speak to at Trump rallies, but there are people I speak to at other candidates' rallies who mm -hmm. talk about race. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think one unfortunate um, aspect of the of the coverage conversation is that it becomes all localized about Trump and then right, there's nothing right, else, right, which is, right. I think, a misrepresentation. Right. Um, I, I do, there is some of that. Um, there is, generally speaking, uh, as, as Glenn hinted at, and I think that it is often not overtly racial, but there is a, a sense of this is a country I no longer recognize um, with changing demographics. I mean, I think the percentage of the white vote decreases, I think, was it 2% every two years, every midterm? Um, you know, which is why the the Obama coalition of voters is how Democrats believe it will be their coalition going forward, um, which is uh, increased Black and Hispanic turnout um, and Asian American turnout. Um, so there is there is some of that. Um, I think that you would be surprised. I think that if you said to a lot of his voters, "Do you think that is racist?" they would right. say no. Right. Um, one one issue in terms of the racial uh, element with Trump and, her, and what he says, um, there was not until recently a whole lot of people calling him out about about race um, overtly. I mean, there were some, um, but for instance, I did a piece with a colleague about um, how he has long had this this cadre of of black celebrity friends mm. um, who, who who you I know, know that piece. Very yeah good piece. he. 
These are not new things he is saying. I mean, the, you know, Russell Simmons was still friends with him after the birther thing. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things about today is Mitt Romney was denouncing him for um, not disavowing David Duke more clearly and faster on Sunday. But Romney took Trump's endorsement in 2012 when he had just lost South Carolina and wanted to blunt Newt Gingrich in Nevada, and that was a year after the birther issue. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a sliding slope here. Um. I think a lot of them are racists. I mean, I, I do. I think there are. Uh, I think there's an element of that. I covered, I covered the White House for uh, three and a half years, and I covered the 2012 campaign in 2008. I do think there is. I'm going to flat out say I think there is an element of xenophobia and racism in, in these folks. But I think it's also mixed in with a lot of other things. Um, and I think if you would, conf when you confront people on it, they're genuinely shocked that you would mention that you would think that they're racists. But you got to look. I mean. I think it's time we kind of look at Trump in his totality. I mean, Jason Horowitz, uh, did he do that story today? Uh, no, he, he reposted a story where he had had that interview with Trump. This was probably in 2014 or 20... This is about his sister? Was no, this was one? about Trump. So Trump's father was... was oh, it was about the brother. Uh, his, no, his father was, uh, was apparently arrested in yes. 1927 yes. at a KKK yes. rally in Queens. And Trump had, all, had nine different answers for why that wasn't true, and all of them were yes. self-contradictory, yes. you know? So I think it's a little hard for him to say that he doesn't have sort of a, a family history of this, you know. Uh, he's got quotes in his book. There are quotes about him talking uh, about preferring Jewish accountants to black accountants. Yes. And look, I grew come on, I grew up in the city in the 1980s. We all know what it's like, right? We all know, you know, I grew up in a liberal Jewish uh, household, and we know we don't use the N-word, we use the S-word. There are, you know, there are various... Uh, ways that white ethnic uh, white ethnics in New York City deal with the issue of race. So I do think race is a very powerful component of this. And let let us also consider that, uh, and this is something Maggie and I have talked a lot about. Uh, the moment where Trump seems to have been active, really activated presidentially, was at the was it 2013 or 2014? At the 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner, um, he this is this was a, really a, a, like a searing moment for me. I wrote about this recently. Um, I was covering what was then the nascent Trump camp campaign, which was when he was flirting with running. Um, I, I did not think he was going to run. He ultimately did not run. Um, and there was a degree of sort of um, uh, Lucy on the football with the RNC, where they were sort of left holding this mess. Um, but, uh, but Trump, I, I agree with Glenn about Trump and being an outsider, but what, what I think that Trump has always wanted is to be taken seriously and to be treated seriously. Not treated um, like a joke. Right. And so, I mean, he's, he's uh, I wrote a story that year with our, one of our former colleagues, Ben Smith, about how Trump uh, does not laugh at himself, and it's really true. And so a few, a few months after that story, uh, Trump got invited to the White House Correspondents' Dinner by the Washington Post. And it was, it was a really big, it was, it was sort of like, almost like a debutante ball moment. Um, he was there with his wife. He got asked as he was walking in, do you think that President Obama will talk about you? The way the Correspondents' Dinner works, for those of you who don't know, is um, the, uh, uh, a comedian does a, a speech. Does that come after the president or before? I don't remember. Before. And then the president does a rebuttal. Um, and it's 2,500 people. It's become one of the hottest tickets you know, in D.C. They're very hard to get. Um, and I was at Politico at the time. And uh, Trump was in the center table at this Washington Post table. And about a month earlier, um, his, his hammering the birther issue had, had forced President Obama to produce his, his, his Hawaiian birth certificate. Remember, Trump was questioning whether he, he offered, was really... What did he offer? Five, 
what was the other officer? I don't remember. His, there was some kind Chris of a college transcript also. I don't remember that one. Right, but I forgot about that, that part. Right. right. But he, right. Um, but Trump claimed he had investigators on the ground in Hawaii, and they can't believe what they're finding. But there was never actually <laughs> any, any findings that he produced. Actually, he literally um, couldn't believe what they were. Any, and it's sort of, and so it, it, um, it ended with this evening, and he got asked do you, as he was on his way in with his wife, "Do you, do you, what do you expect the president is going to say about you?" And he said, "I would be surprised if the president talked about me." And he was not setting up a gag; he was serious. Um, and he sat down at the table, and the president came up, and he did his routine, and he, he savaged Trump. Um, he, the birth certificate was put up on the jumbotron, and there was this throbbing music, and the birth certificate itself was throbbing on the screen, and, and the entire room was laughing and laughing, and, and Obama was mocking Trump, not just for having sort of had this thing get burst, but was mocking him as a fraud. He was talking about how, you know, Trump's preparations for president is, you know, included um, solving mysteries like who killed Biggie and Tupac, and, you know, I know that you have to make tough decisions like whether to vote for Gary Busey off of the table, and, that, and, and it was, and, and Trump sat in the middle of this huge room with, like, celebrities in the room, and everybody was laughing uproariously, and Trump never cracked a smile, and... We were sitting, like, 20, uh, must have been sitting, like, 20 feet from... Yeah, it was close, and it was, and, and... And it was unbelievable. It was really yeah. remarkable, and it was a huge insight into the guy's psyche. Yeah, and I believe has been a real sort of was a was a was a a driving force for him. And this was something I wrote a couple weeks ago in in why he decided to run this time. Now, granted, it's much easier to run for an open seat. Obama was an incumbent in 2012. It was a very different scenario, and I think that the the climate within the Republican base, especially with immigration and national security, really overlapped as issues in the 2014 midterms were drivers for Trump. But I, but I really do believe that that moment was searing and, and, and durable for him. And, and look at who he's picking up in his trail right now. Look at the endorsements in the last couple of days. Jeff Sessions from Alabama, who's probably the most regressive, I wouldn't say the term regressive, I would say probably the most strident anti, oh, I'm sorry. Jeff Sessions from Alabama, who's one of the more strident anti-immigration folks uh, in the country. Joe Arpaio, uh, the sheriff from Phoenix, who you guys are familiar with. Jan Brewer, the governor of Arizona. Chris who, Kobach. The, Chris the, Kobach, who delivered such a wonderful victory to Mitt Romney mm -hmm. with the idea of self-deportation for Latinos last time. So I think what's happening with Trump is Trump may have wanted initially to run I don't think Trump, the truth of the matter is, I don't think, and Maggie can answer to this as well, I don't think Trump quite wanted to run this kind of race, but he is a guy who will lead the crowd that gathers around him. I think that is sort of, if we've learned anything of him, about him as a politician, it is that he will, he can sense the temperature. That was another thing about watching him at rallies. I have never seen a politician with the capacity to, to take the temperature of a room and respond to it Absolutely. in that moment Absolutely. better. Uh, he's just, he's absolutely brilliant at this. He's a, he's a remarkable performer, and, and whether you like him or don't like him, he is an incredible communicator. And one of the things he said to me early on when I was talking to him, I mean, it, it, again, like him or don't like him, the, what he has achieved, this is not, you know, he's not doing with some planning committee at, at Trump Tower. This is 90% force of personality. Um, and 90% Trump himself making these decisions. He's got a, a campaign manager and a, and a political director and a couple of other advisors um, who routinely offer him insights that he will discard, um, and he will just go off with what his instincts tell him. They have, generally speaking, served him incredibly well. He has obviously had some mess-ups um, that he has had to deal with, and he's been, the, been a beneficiary of a lot of really good, good timing, I should say, at certain points in this race. But 
but the, he said to me early on that he doesn't like to use prepared speeches because he likes to make eye contact with people in the room. Um, he, he, and you can see him in the speeches. Do, I, I, I don't remember seeing many politicians who do it as consistently and as sort of locked in as he does. Joe Biden, Joe Biden yeah, is one who's sense. really reactive that's to true. room. Barack Obama, who I, who I uh, and I'm sure Peter was, had the same experience, was a complete, it's fascinating that sort of the two most electrifying speakers that we've seen really in the last eight years are so polar are such polar opposites, you know. Barack Obama really, you know, the, the room existed to sort of exalt him, is mm -hmm. to sort of create a, a backdrop for his oratorical brilliance, whereas Trump literally gets down into the crowd. You can see him. We were sitting before Maggie, this was a funny story, Maggie, when we were in Lowell, at the Lowell event, Maggie got, uh, <laughs> oh, Maggie yeah. was identified as, a, we were trying to sit in with the crowd and not sit in the press pen, because it's just much better to, experience this thing yeah. along with regular folks, right? And so she got made <laughs> and got plucked out of the... Uh, I got, yeah, I got made because I got pulled backstage. She got pulled backstage. And I couldn't really tell if it was because um, they were trying to figure out where, <laughs> where I was and therefore to redirect me to back toward the, the pen, um, which would have been pretty clever, or whether it was just that they were pulling me backstage. Um, but but, the, but yeah. where we were seated was really interesting because we were, we were actually... Trump, so it was sort of Trump was standing right there. So we were seeing Trump observe the crowd. And that was really a fascinating yes. viewpoint. Because, you know, a bit, I don't know if you guys have followed this. Uh, an increasingly important feature of this are, are the protesters getting thrown out. Yes. So it used to be, be that he would make a speech and people would interact with him. But the real focal point of this now are the protesters getting thrown out. And depending on how angry the crowd is, he will either be magnanimous and like, blow them kisses as they're walking out. Or at the Lowell event, he, was at, at, he started off kind of light, and then the crowd got increasingly angry. And it was also, there were like six of them. They were like staggered. Right, and he said, and what did he say? At, at, with the last group, he was like, the hell out of there. get them the hell out of here and don't even give them their coats. And it was like six degrees outside. It was outside. really cold out that night, yeah. yeah. Right, I mean, right, right. yeah. Which is straight out of George Wallace, right? right? I mean, George Wallace needed those protesters in his presidential right. campaigns because they were, they were, his, right. they were his, you know, his foils. Um, do you... Um, is there anybody that Trump listens to? Is there any who? Yes, who? his daughter Ivanka. I mean, and um, I mean, I remember there was some reporting even a few years ago. I remember reading that people in the Trump family during the birther thing were embarrassed, right? I mean, they don't live in Alabama, yeah. right? They live here, right? So, so right. what's how does that work? I mean, yes, that is true that that was the case at the time. And, and last year when he was running, uh, a couple of sources told me at the time that his daughter, Ivanka, had urged him to tone down, especially after Macy's dropped him um, and, uh, and after he lost The Apprentice definitively. And I think then Univision dropped the Miss America pageant. Um, she asked him to tone it down because there was concern, among other things, about, about the brand. His sons were also really concerned, and I, I, I think Ivanka was too, for him in terms of security. They were very worried about, so when he got Secret Service, that was a big relief for them. And there was, I, I had an interesting moment. I went, because um, who among us wouldn't? I went um, pheasant hunting with one of Trump's sons um, in Iowa. And- um, that, was, that was frightening on so many different it levels. Was, it, was, it was, and to, to be clear, I didn't hunt, <laughs> I didn't hunt um, or, or shoot a gun, but, um, but he did. And so his sons, who are both NRA members, and, and Trump is, I mean, one of the things about Trump is that for, there are various ways in which he's been inconsistent over the years, but there are others in which he's been remarkably consistent. And a lot of them are about sort of um, use of use of power, the U.S. role in the world. Um, and he, you know, his love of and, pot roast. And stop it. Um, 
but he's but he is indeed a, like I think he has a, con- a concealed carry permit himself in New York, if memory serves. When we you know the New York Post, we used to run a list of that, um, and he was on it. Um, but his sons are NRA members, so they kept getting rolled out in various places in Iowa, which has a very strong gun culture. Um, and they are remarkably on message, his sons. Like, so both of them would say things like, you know, he's just a guy who wants to go and eat a cheeseburger because he makes him an average guy. Um, you know, we're basically just business people. Um, everything he touches turns to gold and so forth and so on. But at one point I was asking um, his son, Eric, uh, were you happy when your dad got security um, or got Secret Service? And I, I didn't have my tape on at that point, but I was, and I was turning it on. And he said, yeah, I w- I'm really happy. And it was like a very genuine thing that he said. And then as soon as he saw me turning on the tape, just the whole sort of tone of the conversation really changed. Um, you know, his kids are very much a tribute to him. They are, they're, you know, they didn't get in tons of trouble as, as um, children of a wealthy person growing up in New York. Um, they are all very lovely to deal with. Um, but my understanding is all three of them, but primarily his daughter, is the one who can really get through to him. And do you have, you both talked about his ability to feed off where he sees the energy in the crowd and where he sees the political opportunity, right? It seems to me that part of what he did was he leveraged the gap between where Republican donor class were and where Republican voters were, right? Um, There are certain things that you were not allowed to say in the elite levels of the Republican Party that a lot of actual Republicans believed are true, that George W. Bush, you know, did bear some responsibility for 9-11 or that you know, um, that free trade and free immigration really ain't so great, right? Um, but, um, uh, and he also just was willing to overcome those restraints to pander to certain really base instincts that I think a lot of other politicians, you know, uh, restrain themselves from. So I guess, I wonder if you have any opinion on the question of how far you think he would be willing to go. I mean, you know, if you think about the political moment after San Bernardino, right, which, you know, was a very small terrorist attack, Right, uh, the political energy that could be whipped up in the wake of a larger terrorist attack. Right? Um, uh, uh, do you think there are any actual limits on the po- on the policies that he might propose, um, uh, based out of conscience or respect for basic norms of decency and the things like the Bill of Rights, uh, or do you think it's a free for all? No, I actually think that I think. No, Glenn, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, I. I let me first take one of the predicates and then answer the, the, the thing. Uh, well, let me answer the thing and then take one of the predicates. Um, I do think he does have limits. I do think he is, uh, I do think there is a gap between his performance and his actual uh, desire for sort of stability. I don't think, if you sort of look at his, he is a guy who takes advantage of systems. He is not a guy who smashes them, right? He is a loophole guy. He is not a, uh, you know, a bullet hole guy. Um, and I think, in general, what you're going to see with him... So I think one of the really fascinating dynamics, and you won't know this unless you've covered government, right? The, his lack, I think, the, for me, the, the, the most defining characteristic, beyond all this uh, showmanship stuff, is his fundamental ignorance about the way the government works. Um, and, I, and I think he had... There was a very telling mistake that he made a couple of days ago where he actually just mistook the legislative for the judicial branch when he was sort of talking about his sister being on the Court of Appeals. He just, it was very clear to me that he did not have, remember, I'm just a bill, yes, I'm only a bill. I don't think he had heard that Schoolhouse Rock riff. Um, and, I think, and I think that 
puts him in a very vulnerable position as a president. I think that's a real paradox. I think there's a presumption of strength about Donald Trump, but the fact that he has an ignorance about the basic functions of government and how the wheels work um, will actually put him uh, at a disadvantage and make him pray for his advisors. Um, it is an enormous, I can tell you from covering the White House, Barack Obama is a very cerebral guy. Um, he doesn't know, half the time, he doesn't know what the hell's going on. You know, I, I, I sat in the Oval Office and interviewed him about a month and a half ago, and the main thing he wanted to sort of impart to me was the fact that he was bewildered every day, that he, that he would work on what, you know, he, the, the really telling anecdote is, uh, I asked him whether or not he thought Bernie Sanders was a one-issue candidate, and he stood up and he pointed to the Resolute desk, the desk he sits at every day, and he said, a couple of weeks ago I was working on the State of the Union address, uh, and a couple of guys in uniforms come in and tell me that 10 of our sailors have been taken by the Iranian Navy. And he's, he's looking at me, he's like, well, what the hell do you do when something like that happens? Um, and I think the, the, the illusion of Trump, and I, think, uh, and I think the real flaw of this process is that we, are, we don't hold these politicians to account in terms of the actual functioning of the presidency. And I think the simplicity with which he talks about things um, will actually make it less likely, not more likely, though, ha that he'll have the control over the levers of government that he claims to have. I think that a lot of what Trump says is 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 thought out in advance. I don't think it is. All, I think it, it is designed to give the appearance that it is all spontaneous and knee jerk. Um, I think that what he has, does have a tendency to do is um, wander into saying something, sort of wander into like a, a verbal cul-de-sac. And, and, you know, so sound like he's leaving open the possibility that he would make all Muslims, you know, join a registry in the country. And then he has trouble getting himself out of it without acknowledging that he wasn't really paying attention because then that's a weakness. Um, uh, I do think there are limits. I mean, he's an, he is a candidate who is very, very hard to pin down ideologically, which is one of the reasons that his rise was, I think, sort of misread and sort of confounding to people. Um, he is a candidate to, uh, who, in one sentence, says, I mean, just, just try to make sense of this. I want to repeal Obamacare, but I'm okay with the requisite that they have to treat people with, with pre-existing uh, conditions, and we're not going to let people die in the streets. And so that's, that's a hard through line. Um, he, just in terms of, in terms of pure, pure policy um, uh, rigidity, I do think that there is a part, of, I do think that he, I don't think he is an, an, an uncompassionate man. I think that he, and I do think there are limits to where he would put things um, or what he would do with the levers of power, but I think that um, what he is predisposed to doing is um, saying something that is either sort of atavistic or that is um, knee-jerk and but not really thought out. The one thing I would say is that's cool as a candidate, but presidents... Yes. Uh, the fun, funny thing about uh, the presidency, and I've, saw, I've seen this yes. with Obama, and I saw this at the tail end of Bush, is it's funny how when you're president of the United States, stuff that you say has a tendency to actually happen. Yep. So, mm. so when you say something as a presidential candidate, yep. and you're in Lowell, Massachusetts, or, or Mobile, Alabama, it's all, it's all fun and games, man. But the president of the United States says something from that podium, it sticks. The rest of the world uh, listens. So well, I think... Yeah. So I think that's, I mean, to me, that would be a big question. I agree I with that. And to your point, actually, I mean, this is another issue that we see with Trump a lot. I actually did a story about this this morning that I'm getting, like, m murdered on, uh, over, on Twitter. But, uh, but uh, one of the things that's been sort of um, 
interesting to watch in the last couple of days is all of this outrage about Trump, about David Duke, or about the Mussolini quote that he retweeted, which was a, a gawker plant on Twitter, but, but it doesn't matter. Um, there's this sudden sense of outrage that people are having about Trump, and, and he's been saying most of this stuff for months and months and months. It's just that people were not taking it seriously, um, or much of this stuff. I mean, the, the, the Muslim registry was back in October or November, um, the Muslim ban was shortly after uh, the Paris attacks. So it's not like this is, that was not that recent. Um, and there's not much of a newness to it. But there has been a normalizing of what he says. There has been a normalizing of, you know, he's, it's really, it, like I'll give you a key example, and this was in my story today. You know, he, he, he is willing to touch sort of fringe ideas and theories and things that have existed on like the far reaches of the internet and treat them as fact and pass them along. A colleague of mine described him as the email forward candidate. And it really is true. It's like, you know, he's, yeah. he's um, and he's the likeliest to begin a sentence with, I hear, you know, as in like, I hear that, you know, Scalia was found with a pillow over right. his head. I mean, he was asked about it, but what he was asked about was, what do you think of these murder allegations, right. which like no, almost no other candidate would, would answer. And he sort of entertained the question before putting it away for a second, but mostly, but he still toyed with it. Um, and one of the things that he did from a debate stage was just declare that he knows a two-year-old who was given a vaccination and got a fever a short time later and immediately developed autism. Michelle Bachman said something not dissimilar in 2012. She said she knew somebody who had, and I quote, mental retardation developed after a vaccination. And she was just savaged on television for saying this as a, as a, as a fringe candidate and as not devoted to science. Trump said this and it faced almost no blowback. So there has been this kind of sanding down at the edges of people reacting to what he says and it's now just become kind of part of the it's his conversation. Brand. Yes, and saying so, crazy shit is his brand. But and so, like, so he right. gets a permission structure to say that. So, so right. So one of the obviously the debates that this has caused is a debate about the right, what the media should be doing, right? And so one school of thought that says that you know the, the objectivity rules are preventing people people in the media from screaming liar, bigot you know, to, in the way they should. Yep. Um, and other people are saying, no, they're doing that, but it doesn't really make any difference because those people hate the media. Um, and uh, so it'll backfire. I mean, what, what is the moral responsibility of journalists faced with a candidate like this? Well, first thing I would say, I would give uh, my, my colleague here uh, enormous credit for writing one of the first stories that really called Trump out on this stuff. And, and establishing a paradigm at the New York Times, which I hear is a fairly influential publication. But it's in deep decline. Deep decline, owned by Mexicans, apparently. <laughs> Sad exclamation point. Uh, Maggie and her colleagues uh, did, I think, a wonderful job to sort of establish that there, there was a line on that stuff. But look, um, the one thing I just want to sort of clarify here, and I may regret saying this, is... Republicans represent, self-identified Republicans, represent, what, 27 to 29% of the population. And Donald Trump has been getting between, shall we say, 30% and 43 44% of that group. A general election is a very, very, very different thing. So he's being given permission in a fairly narrow context. Now, I think a lot of Democrats, particularly in the, in, in the Brooklyn headquarters of the Clinton folks, are scared that Trump will figure out a way to sort of somehow maneuver himself to the center where he's becoming more appealing. But in general, I would say a lot of this stuff is in a hothouse. We'll see if he can sort of take this to the larger stage. 
agree with that. I totally agree with that. I mean, I think just your responsibility question. I mean, I think that, I think that's one that the media, and I'm not a media reporter, so I'm reluctant to delve too, too deeply into that, but I do think that, um, I think that there are things that, um, Rich Lowry, who's the, uh, the, the editor at the National Review, which has, has done scathing editorials about Trump, um, and, and Rich uh, has been the subject of a lot of Trump vitriol on Twitter, um, really sort of nasty stuff at him. But Rich said to me, um, for a story we did the other day, if Hillary Clinton was doing some of what he does, she would be, you know, correctly, um, you know, savaged by people and by conservatives, but Trump does it and everyone sort of gives him a pass. Um, I think that there has been sort of a, a tendency to cover him in a shock jock way in terms of, so there's a great line in the, in the movie Private Parts, the Howard Stern movie, where an NBC executive who's determined to scuttle Stern orders up a rating study and he's talking to the guy who does the rating study, and the, the guy who did the study said, well, the average listener who likes him listens for an hour. Uh, the reason most often given, I want to see what, he what he's going to say next. And the, the NBC manager says, well, what about the people who don't like him? And he said, oh, average listener who doesn't like him listens for two and a half hours. <laughs> answer most given, I want to hear what he's going to say next. <laughs> and, like, that's... Howard Stern was one of, we should just say, yeah. Howard Stern was one of the people that uh, Donald Trump consulted before running for president. He spoke to, he was on Stern's, is that true? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. He was on, he was on Stern's, uh, he was on Stern's Not show. Not saying I'm a listener. He was Stern's show, uh, on Stern's show a lot over many, many years. Um, and it sort of helped inform his thinking, I guess, to your point. Um, but, uh, but I think that there has, you know, when, when we saw Huffing, there was, a re, oh, there was a desire, I think, by media at large to, to say, we're going to cover him the way we believe this race should be as opposed to the way this race is. And so... The Huffington Post. You, Huffington Post, putting him in the entertainment section... They've now been forced to not do that, although they run every story about him with editor's note. He's a xenophobe, this or that. Um, you know, he's, um, uh, he has survived while Jeb Bush, who got, I would say, a, a, a pretty disproportionate amount of coverage across the board, given where he was polling, um, Jeb Bush is now gone, uh, and $150 million with him. So, you know, there, there's just been a, I think there's just people have been struggling with how to cover this on a wide range of issues throughout. Well, so, well, he also, the other thing about it is just, he's come, he's like the perfect, he's like the arrow that killed Smog the dragon, right? He finds, he has found the gap in the armor of American media, where at a very vulnerable point, basic cable is on life support, and every time this guy goes on, or actually his ratings in the debates have declined precipitously, which I think is an interesting phenomenon that could be telling, but... He gives uh, Basic Cable really great ratings. It was one day at Politico. We have like a top ten most read. We're nine of the I top ten. Mm -hmm. And on any given day, six of the top ten will be Trump. Look at us. How, yeah. how much time we talked about Hillary Clinton? Right. right I was actually just thinking about that. It's been about, right? it's been about 40 minutes on Trump. So, right? so I think, like, I mean, like, people are really, you know, as Maggie made with the Howard Stern point, people are repulsed and fascinated or attracted and fascinated. And it's, and it's different. It's, I mean, one of the interesting things to your point about Hillary Clinton and how we haven't talked about, about her, um, but I've been sort of fascinated by this. Hillary Clinton um, has never been in a campaign where she wasn't the biggest celebrity before. Even when Obama was a celebrity in 08 and had a newness about him, which was a big thing, she still was a, a bigger global force. Um, and I covered her 2000 Senate race, and that was a huge driving factor, obviously, as sitting first lady running. 
Trump is a is a is a bigger and different kind of celebrity, and he's a celebrity who is enjoying himself enormously at this. Um, Hillary Clinton has struggled to enjoy herself, and and this is just not you know some this is not a milieu that she loves is campaigning, and she's pretty open about that. She actually had an interview the other day. I have this line this theory about her that it takes you know she needs a long runway sort of for the plane to take off always on her campaigns, and she said that that like it takes me a while to to get my bearings. Um, Which was really she, I thought smart she, first time she'd ever really. Yeah, totally. I mean, she actually talking, acknowledged you know, that. Yeah, I was surprised know, by that. Like, we talk with her folks all the time, Maggie and I, and, like, you know, they ask you sort of like, you know, it's not they ask you for advice on messaging, but you have a conversation about it. And one of the things that's always struck, I think, both of us is her lack of self-deprecation about this. She's clearly, in, she's not as good a candidate as her husband or Barack Obama. And for the first, I think it was on the Today Show, she actually admitted that. I think that's going to help her. Yeah, it was. It was. I was. It was. A, it was. A, it was an unusual level of candor for her. But she does. But she. She has seemed sort of smaller in a way compared to Trump. And she actually got at that. The pinnacle of this moment was she got asked by a, my colleague Jonathan Martin. Observed this. Um, <clears throat> a child at a rope line at one of her rallies recently said, "What was it like to meet Donald Trump?" <laughs> and it was like that. Really tells you all you need to know about where we are right now. But isn't that good? Uh, I think on some level it's good for her. Because she's always wilted when she's the one who's the, the, focal, the focal point. I think one of the big yeah. dangers now is, like, if she's got four months where she's just sitting around waiting for the general election, I think that she's enormously vulnerable. I think, well, I, so I actually think that I have a slightly different view. I think the Democrats are, if they, if they use their time sort of politically wisely, and I would say the same thing if it was true of the Republicans too, it is always to your benefit when the other side is fighting a lot. And I realize that Republicans convince themselves that, you know, things would have, I think that McCain was going to be at a disadvantage um, replacing a, a two-term Republican in 2008 regardless, but the fiscal uh, crash made it pretty much impossible. Um, I, I don't think that this particular Republican primary, assuming that, that Donald Trump emerges as the nominee, is in any way, it, it's going to be, the, the party is like eating itself right now. And my colleagues and I reported on this um, the other day, um, last night you saw um, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass say that he will not vote for Donald Trump. He would look for a, a th and he also wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. He would look for a, a, an alternative. That's just not a winning message for the party heading into the general. No, and I, I did, and, I did uh, an interview with uh, Rick Tyler who was deposed. I'm sorry. I did an interview with, sorry, sorry guys, sorry. <laughs> I did, don't get all Trump on me. Uh, I did an interview with Rick Tyler a couple of days ago who was uh, Ted Cruz's former communications director. He got, he kind of resigned because he was accused of doing some dirty tricks. And I asked him uh, if he thought this issue of uh, Republicans declining to support Trump was a big deal. And he said, it doesn't work that way. They're going to say they support him. But he said that neither Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio is going to lift a single finger. It's been too contentious. He thinks that a lot of the big donors, especially the pro-Israel donors like Sheldon Adelson and Paul Singer, are going to sit it out, and that it's going to be kind of the basic dynamic of this race is going to be Trump against the world. So I just wanted to, before we go to the questions, I wanted to just ask a little bit more about what it's like talking to people in the Republican Party right now, and maybe this is punditry, but what are the potential scenarios? I mean, uh, do you think it's, let's assume that Trump gets the nomination. Do you think that there will be a significant third-party candidate that conservatives get behind. And once Trump wins that nomination, can the, can the Republican Party be taken back from him? Or, or if he loses big, then the Republican Party gets taken back, as you see, we're never going down. Or does is there, is, or is that inevitably create a permanent 
shift that means that the Republican Party as we've known it, you know, never goes back to its pre-Trump identity. And I think that this, this, is the, this is an unanswerable to some extent, but just the theories of the case at the moment. Um, there had been one school, of, a pretty prevalent school of thought before that Trump, by some Republican elites, that Trump would be a better uh, case scenario for them than Cruz because they would be able to explain him away, whereas Cruz really is one of their own. Um, you know, Trump could lease the party and so forth. Um, what you've seen with Trump in the last couple of days has made it a lot harder, I think, for a lot of Republicans who, who I'm talking to to say that they think that that scenario makes any sense. Um, you have uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, like conferring with people about how are we going to kind of cauterize the wound and what can be done so that we can save the majority. Remember, it's only five seats. That's not a lot. And you can look at the list right now and look at like where there's real trouble spots. Um, you know, with Cruz, he is still one of their own. The problem with Cruz is that he, um, it isn't just, oh, you know, you hear this over and over, but they just don't like Cruz, or they just don't. I mean, Cruz stood on the Senate floor and called McConnell a liar. So that makes it pretty hard in in the Senate, which is all about loyalty, to some extent toward leadership, to, um, to, to go along with him. But I do think that Cruz would be easier, especially to the base, to explain, because to Glenn's point about when you will start to see Trump modulate his stances for a general election. I mean, you've already started seeing some of that mm -hmm. pre-David Duke, but, um, you know, you were seeing him, t um, you know, talking about wanting to reach out to black voters more. Um, and I, and, and there has generally been a, a sense that he would, he would move rather quickly to the center to the extent he could but, once there was a general election. But, but that's where it gets, I think, really dangerous for Donald Trump. And this is something I think folks who, who haven't uh, been around, uh, particularly the House in the last five or six years, don't fully appreciate. There is a sense of burning rage among uh, this core of Tea Party folks who now make up 85, uh, uh, roughly 85 people in the House. Um, also broadly reflective of talk radio, there's a sense that their party has betrayed them by making these moves to the center. So Trump thus far has been fairly amorphous, but what Ted Cruz really represents, and Rubio to some extent re represents it as well, is this anger they have at the Republican establishment that predated the Trump phenomenon. Uh, John Boehner making budget deals. They believe that their party, as crazy as this might sound because we've had how many budget impasses, how many Obamacare repeal votes, from, from, the, from a external perspective, it appears that they've just been ramming their heads against the wall over and over and over again. But the perception among uh, really conservative, Tea Party conservatives, is that their leaders have sold them out time after time after time. It's why they're willing to even entertain a guy like Trump. If Trump decides to toggle back towards the middle and, and there is a wider broadcast of his uh, squishiness on Obamacare, that's where the I, air comes I out of the bubble. Not him saying crazy stuff. Totally agree with that's you. That's his most uh, dangerous moment. Totally, totally agree. And, that's that, and that is why Cruz is the safer bet, because Cruz is a... I mean, look, Cruz's whole bet this election has been flawed in the sense that Cruz made a bet that what the voters in his party were going to want at the base was ideological purity that that was more important than anything else. And, and Cruz made the bet that I am the purest um, ideologically in this race. Marco Rubio is, is squishy on immigration. Trump is Trump. You know, and you look down the rest of the field, Jeb is Jeb. Um, but Trump has shown us that that is not at all, actually, or at least not what most Republican 
uh, voters want to the extent that there is a most. I mean, Trump is winning by a, a low pr plurality in some of these contests, but it's still a plurality. The he's, bringing new, he's also bringing new voters, uh, yes. Obama style, he's bringing new voters into the process. The question, though, is that the, these have generally, there are three open contests that have existed so far, meaning that independents and Democrats could vote in them, and I still don't know what the breakdown was of that. Um, one of the most interesting things that his campaign manager said to one of my colleagues recently uh, before New Hampshire was, you know, we were asking who your who, who your voter targets are, and he said we're targeting people who haven't voted in, in the last several presidential elections, not just like last one or the one before, but several, um, or who have never voted at all. Like that's not low propensity voter; that is no propensity voter. And and so then the question becomes whether this is a, these are people who stay within the Republican coalition or not. That's to Glenn's point about Trump kind of moving away from the base. Trump is such a a unique phenomenon that I'm not sure these are people who who stay within the party. And there is no Republican Party. I, I think it's right. just I think we just have to come to recognize the fact that as a coherent institution, what was it? Will Rogers used to say, "I don't belong to an organized party. I'm a Democrat." Sorry, <laughs> Will Rogers said that he used to say that I belong to an organized party. I'm a Democrat. Uh, I think the Republican Party is totally atomized right now. And and but I would say one thing: a really good candidate a really good unifying candidate can turn a party around in a heartbeat. And all of these sort of institutional ideological uh, problems tend to go away. The problem is the Republicans haven't had a really good candidate. Let's, uh, let's go to you um, uh, in the back. Uh, no, no, just please do one because we don't have that much time. Hillary. No, 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 one question, please. Okay. Uh, Donald Trump has a strong motto. Why does Hillary not? And why is she running such a horrible campaign? Over to you, Glenn. No, no, I was going to say. All <laughs> yours. Peter, you've got this one. <laughs> um, why does Hillary, Donald Trump has a very strong motto, make America great again. Why doesn't Hillary, why is she running such a horrible campaign? Well, having written many, Three many, questions. many, many stories about, no, actually it is one question, <laughs> oddly enough, and I will speak up. Um, I think Hillary Clinton uh, governs in paragraphs and lists. Uh, here's a telling anecdote. At her, uh, opening, at her opening rally on Roosevelt Island, I happened to be standing with one of her senior staffers. She was giving a speech. This thing made a State of the Union look like a 30-second you know, Cialis ad. <laughs> uh, we were into minute number 47 or 48. I get a tap on my shoulder, and I'm talking a senior, senior person who worked for Hillary, Hillary Clinton's staff said, come on, let's go get a soda. <laughs> I think she, I, I think, uh, I think South Carolina, uh, she really found her voice again. We've heard that a lot of times with her. I think actually getting back in touch with the African-American base in the party, which is a very natural, intuitive uh, audience for her, has sort of changed that dynamic. Uh, but yeah, I think she's someone who governs in prose. And it's, it's a real problem. And I don't think there's any, any two ways around it. This is who she is as a candidate. I think there's also another, what your question about Trump was who does he listen to? I mean, this is the ongoing problem with Hillary Clinton is who does she listen to? And, and Glenn did a podcast earlier with uh, David Pluff, the architect of the Obama uh, uh, campaign in, in 08, or one of them. And um, he, was pretty, he was pretty forceful, and this struck me as something of a warning shot to Brooklyn, frankly, like that she needs, she needs to basically stop taking, you know, and seeking thousands of inputs from this this cast of characters dating back to the 1990s and then throughout, she's got you know these these various concentric circles that she's been listening to for a very very long time, um, and on a campaign you you it it's not it can't be a cast of thousands. There has to be like one person who's the chief strategist, 
And for all intents and purposes, there really isn't one right now. I mean, this is the, um, she is in many ways running the campaign that she always wanted to run, which is she has not dealt with her press corps as, uh, unless something has changed in 81, in days, 81 days. I think it's more than that. I think it's now almost 85. Um, and you know, in 85 days, if her 2008 campaign thought that it was possible to not talk to her, her assigned press corps, for two and a half months, they oh, would no, have done we it. Had, we had, I was there. We had access there was a press to press plane. Oh, I wouldn't say to, daily, yeah. but we had yeah. a lot of access yeah. to Hillary Clinton. I mean, for, for for all of the criticisms of Trump, he is not he's not not talking to reporters, um, but uh, he just might be doing it in a bit of a different way. Um, but but also, she's not. Um, she she's. I think that the fundamental problem this campaign cycle is that she was. Um, she was thrown by this email issue that it was of her own making, and she has never been able to sort of find a way out of that box. Are there any students who have a question? Uh, students? Over there. Oh. Uh, go ahead. Oh, thank you. You talked a bit about Al Sharpton's view of Trump as an outsider always trying to fit in, but in the political spectrum, hasn't Hillary Clinton always kind of been an outsider um, as, as a senator, as um, as a Secretary of State, as a candidate, and I'm not quite old enough to remember, as a First Lady, she was pretty controversial all the time. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think Hillary Clinton has, has been an outsider yeah, for a long not time. Yeah, not I mean, for quite some time. I guess everybody gets to say they're an outsider, right? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is the outsider cycle. Now, I, I don't think yeah. that Hillary Clinton, I, think, I, think that, I don't think that Hillary Clinton is, is an outsider. The second mansion did it. I think she, mm -hmm. The first one, I think she could that, have been I think that, um, sure. I think that she has tried to say that yeah. being the first woman president would, would be new and therefore makes her an outsider in a certain way. But I mean, just for instance, as a, the way she was as a senator, she was very much an old school Senate Paul where she sort of made deals and made certain and a, alliances. And a very good one. She was, she was, yeah. she was an effective senator, but, but she, was not, she was not breaking the mold of how senators normally are. Uh, go ahead. You. Hi. Hi. Um, is Secretary Clinton at all worried that, or bewildered at, at all at the large youth turnout towards Senator Sanders? And is she worried at all that they just won't come for her in a general? I think worried, yes I, I'd yes. use the word freaked out would be probably. <laughs> and I, th I think we were talking in, in, New, in Nevada, uh, let me see if I got my ratios right. Six, six and a half, seven to one in Nevada, eight to one in New Hampshire. It is a massive problem. Um, I've been talking with a bunch of, uh, they have a very simple, elegant solution there in Brooklyn to this problem in the general election, and that is to hire this guy named Bernie Sanders to come out and campaign. I think youth will be served and the waiter will be 74 years old. <laughs> ah, great, go ahead. <laughs> You've got to be loud or they're yeah. going to turn on you. I grew up in Brooklyn during my college years. My family and I lived in Trump Village. The best thing about I Brighton mostly Beach. Jewish neighbors. Right, yeah, I, know. I assumed Fred Trump was Jewish. So the best <laughs> thing that came out of this campaign is learning that Donald isn't. Um, the uh, war, war the bass is, and war bass, right? What? Yeah. what right. That I'm was sorry, right. I don't mean to get all Brooklyn Jewish. Um, what? If at the Republican convention it becomes a brokered convention, even though Trump does extremely well, better than any other candidate in the primaries, but the establishment turns against him and somehow he's not the candidate, 
What do you think Trump will do? It's a, it's a great question, but there's, so I guess there's two, there's two things there. One is, um, there is no establishment. Um, there just isn't. There's, there's some governors, there's some donors, there's the RNC, but the smoke-filled room thing doesn't really exist anymore. There's just people who are, like, basically sitting in dark rooms screaming into pillows that Trump is where he is. Scalia pillow. Uh, stop it. Do you buy the idea um, that they're afraid of, 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 of the consequences? Of yes, I think they're enormously afraid of the consequences. But there is a and technical, like, there, there is a technical way for the insiders to hijack. No, they'd have to rewrite the rules. You can't. Wouldn't they have to, the, the scenario that I heard, and tell me if I, this is whimsical, is like, uh, d couldn't the delegates literally walk out of the hall, not vote, for, vote absentee on the first ballot, and then they're freed up on the second ballot? Um, I have heard a version of that, but here's the, so here's, before you even get to that, because the, the, whole, the whole Rubio scenario is, you know, the, the, these delegates are only bound on the first ballot. So when you get to the second ballot, but the problem with that is that um, they have to, the, the, the current rules that stand for the convention, and they get redone every four years right before the convention, but from the last convention, which was done to help elect President Romney um, and to avoid Ron Paul being nominated from the floor, um, made it that you have to have won the majority of delegates in at least eight states. So that is Marco Rubio's challenge. Um, now, they could get to the spring meeting for the RNC or the meeting right, rules meeting right before the convention and rewrite the rules so that it's, you only have to win three delegates in this one congressional district in, in this one state. Um, but the freak out about that alone if Trump continues. I mean, a lot of this is going to depend on tomorrow night, honestly. Tomorrow night being Super Tuesday, there's 12 contests. Um, I think two of them are caucuses where they're not even picking the delegates. They're going to just deal with it later. Um, and one of the contests is Texas, Ted Cruz's state, where he polls had shown him winning, but I think it has tightened. Uh, if Cruz loses Texas, that becomes a different story. But if, if Trump wins pretty much everything but Texas. How do you explain, if you are the RNC to the party, how do you explain to your voters, we just rewrote these rules, even though you know, Trump will at that point have something like two million votes that he's gotten. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's just a really tough scenario. So a lot of what has been described is balanced on such a sort of unstable house. Uh, thank you very, very much, a Maggie pleasure. and Glenn. This was fabulous. Um, very, very grateful for you guys coming and spending the evening with us. You've been listening to the CUNY Lecture Series. For more, visit CUNY Radio online at cuny.edu slash radio. The CUNY Lecture Series is a production of the Office of University Relations.